Good tidings to you that the glorious message of peace and love fill your hearts this joyous holiday season. Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, and Happy Holidays. Season's greetings to all during this bright, magical time of the year as I have the utmost pleasure in welcoming you to the 20th of December 2022 episode of the Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast. This weekly podcast is hosted by me, Jeffrey Bingham Mead. I'm a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut, long known as the Gateway to New England. The town was founded on July 18th, 1640. Since those early humble beginnings, Greenwich, Connecticut has grown to become, in the 21st century, one of America's most notable and attractive communities, a special place that we call home. Whether your roots go back nearly 400 years as ours do, whether you're here to stay or just passing through, well, we welcome you with open arms. You're a part of our history, and I'm so glad that you could join us for today's show. The Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast is made possible by Site Design Associates, the Long Island Sound Institute, the Ambassador Museum, the United States of America, Kevin M.J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and listeners like you everywhere. Coming up on today's show. Well, I'll be sharing with you in the spirit of the holiday season, a sampling of how the holidays were celebrated in Greenwich's history. Also, quote, few people are aware that the Rockefeller family with its residential park influenced the orderly development of the central part of Greenwich more than any other landowner, unquote, states the Great Estates, Greenwich, Connecticut, 1880-1930 book by the Junior League of Greenwich. The existence, as I continue, of the two Rockefeller mansions is now a mostly forgotten part of the town's history. But the concerned and wise subdivision of the Brothers' Vast Holdings has proved a priceless legacy for the Greenwich they loved. I'll have more about that. And we'll be doing that by visiting the William G. Rockefeller Estate in Owen Oak Farm that was principally owned by Percy Rockefeller. Quote, Savannah Selleck got fed up with the trip and decided to d- build his own grist mill just east of Round Hill Road on his 47-acre farm. Those words were written by Greenwich realtor Mark Pruner in a column that recently was published um, by the Greenwich Sentinel. I'm going to share the text of Pruner's article, and I'm going to let you know about a new initiative that is underway to preserve the Selleck grist mill. That grist mill, which is on Old Mill Road, quite appropriately, dates from circa 1796. It is a recognized Greenwich landmark, and it is also listed on the National Register of Historic Places. Now, published on December 11, 1930 in the Greenwich Press, our good friend Judge Frederick A. Hubbard wrote about, in his column, The Judge's Corner, quote, motion pictures, outgrowth of earlier inventions 40 years ago, marking towns and keeping up appearances and seed propagation. And I'll have the details about that. Well, I want to extend a thanks to Rick Hansen. He is the Greenwich Library's local history uh, librarian, and he has announced the Heritage with Hoopla series starting in January 2023. I'm going to have some details, and you're going to want to mark your calendars. I suspect that for a number of you, one of your New Year's resolutions is going 
going to be engaging in family genealogy, and Rick and his associates are going to come to your assistance in only the way that they know how. <laughs> All right. It's getting rave reviews, my friends. Uh, I want you to be sure to see Life and Art, the Greenwich paintings of John Henry Twachman. Um, that exhibit closes one month uh, from now on January 22nd, 2023. I'll have um, uh, some reminders about that. Also, um, some miscellaneous news, uh, such as preservation efforts about to get underway at the Thomas Lyon House, thanks to the Greenwich Preservation Trust. Also, members of the Conservation Commission conducted a site walk at uh, the Old Burying Ground at Byram, and also the Horseneck Chapter of Daughters of the American Revolution held its Wreaths Across America ceremony at the same place. In Greenwich life as it was a century ago, that would be 1922, it was noted that Christmas in Greenwich, quote, has become more and more celebrated. Never have the Greenwich stores carried such assortments of all kinds of articles, expensive and not costly in price, especially for the Christmas trade, as have been displayed this year, and I'll have more details about that. Also, as always, I will have all sorts of historical miscellaneous news about crimes, fires, maybe a catastrophe or two. We'll see what happens. My friends, you have come to the right place. To learn about the history of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut, one of America's most interesting and extraordinary communities, we will have this for you and a whole lot more as history continues to unfold. Stay tuned. We'll be right back after these important messages. Make Site Design Associates of Greenwich, Connecticut your choice when it comes to taking your beautiful landscaped property to the next level. An award-winning landscape architecture studio since 1979, Site Design Associates places a high value on a unique multidisciplinary approach to landscape design and development that is second to none. From analysis to construction to maintenance with 35 years of experience, Site Design Associates offers services that are collaborative and visionary with each client's unique style in mind. Offices are located at 777 West Putnam Avenue in Greenwich, Connecticut. Call 203-869-6895 or go online to learn more at sitedesignassociates.com. The Long Island Sound Institute understands that a bright environmental future relies on brilliant ideas and methods. A special initiative by Site Design Associates, LISI is a community of diverse professionals, researchers, academics, and concerned citizens, harnessing the powers of imagination and innovation to achieve the ecological balance and conservation of Long Island Sound for present and future generations. It aims to use modern planning and the implementation of new technologies to conserve Long Island Sound, looking forward to a bright future of effective leadership. To learn more about the Long Island Sound Institute, go online to lisistudy.info or call 203-869-8632.
The Ambassador Museum, United States of America, is a tribute to those Americans who served the nation on the international scene as ambassadors in the American diplomatic corps. There has never been a museum specifically dedicated to ambassadors. The museum's founders and supporters are committed to achieving its educational mission with programs and events for high school and college students. My friends, you can learn more by contacting the Ambassador Museum, United States of America, by calling 203-869-8632, right to Box 5002, Greenwich, Connecticut, 06831, or go online at amusa.info. Well, thank you, Kevin M.J. O'Connor, Vice President of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, knowledgeable in the complexities of the financial markets with a passion for servicing clients and their financial needs. My friends, learn more at jeffreymatthews.com or call Kevin M.J. O'Connor at his Greenwich office, telephone 203-485-7595. Again, that's Kevin M.J. O'Connor. Greenwich office at 203-485-7595. Well, my friends, it's time to go back in Greenwich, Connecticut's history to the Gilded Age era when wealthy Americans constructed splendid mansions, outbuildings, and landscapes, a time that the late town historian William E. Finch Jr. referred to as, quote, the flowering of Greenwich, unquote, an age when the word Greenwich first became synonymous with the word millionaire. Now, thanks to the Junior League of Greenwich, the Great Estates Greenwich, Connecticut, 1880-1930 book was published. It is richly illustrated, revealing a wealth of detailed information and history. I strongly recommend it. Now, on today's show, we'll visit the estate of William G. Rockefeller, who was its principal owner. Now, you might recall from one of my recent shows that it was 100 years ago, 1922, when Rockefeller died. Now, no one knows who the original architect of the estate was before 1889. The architect for the renovations in 1905 was William G. Rockefeller himself. We'll also visit Owen Oak Farm, whose principal owner was Percy Rockefeller. It was designed by Hiss and Weeks and constructed in the years 1907 through 1908. Few people are aware that the Rockefeller family, with its, quote, residential park, unquote, influenced the orderly development of the central part of Greenwich more than any other landowner. The existence of the two Rockefeller mansions is now a mostly forgotten part of the town's history, but the concerned and wise subdivision of the brothers' vast holdings has proved a priceless legacy for the Greenwich they loved. One must begin with the holdings of William, who lived from 1841 to 1922, brother of John D. Rockefeller. He began to accumulate land in the 1870s, buying six acres here, 30 there, as much as 200 elsewhere from such early residents as John Denton, Eli Perry, and John Sniffen. One of the best known of his purchases was the 37-acre farm of the like lifelong recluse David Houston for $25,000. Houston descended from Angel Houston, one of the original patentees of the town in 1665, had once had lived alone 
there all of his life in a building which included a cow shed in the basement, carriage and living rooms above, and a hayloft on top. On October 14, 1903, the New York Times, in reporting the sale, stated that Houston's farm was so rocky that it was said one could jump from one stone to another all over it without touching ground, unquote. William's son, Percy, later built his mansion on this land, on the east side of Lake Avenue, north of North Maple Avenue. William Rockefeller made another important purchase in 1899 on the west side of Lake Avenue, a little over 40 acres from Theodosius Secor, brother-in-law of Joseph Houston. Rockefeller's primary Greenwich residence until he built a mansion on his Terrytown holdings at the uh, about that time, had been his home called One Elm on what is now Millbank Avenue. Secor's house later became the home of his son, William Goodsell Rockefeller. In 1880, the same Joseph Houston had sold William Rockefeller almost 43 acres for $15,000, this being the land which became the famous Deer Park. By the time William moved to Terrytown, having sold one elm, he had accumulated over 400 acres in central Greenwich. His two sons, William G. and Percy, continued to buy acreage to add to their father's holdings, and much of his land was transferred to them, most, most notably the sites of their homes and also Deer Park, which, however, they owned jointly. William Goodsell Rockefeller, who lived from 1870 to 1922, was the older of the two brothers. After his graduation from Yale, he went to work in his father's office. His father was the principal founder of the Standard Oil Organization. But although William G. was for a time treasurer of the New York Standard Oil Company, his interests led toward copper rather than oil. His marriage to Elsie Stillman, who lived from 1872 to 1935, in 1895, was one of the notable social events of the year. James Stillman, her father, for many years president of National City Bank, and largely responsible for its development, was one of the most powerful figures of his generation in American finance. Consequently, their wedding was one was of more than just social interest. The couple lived at first in the Madison Avenue house given to them by her family, and they went to Greenwich only in the summertime. However, in the spring of 1905, the New York Times reported that, quote, William G. Rockefeller is spending $40,000 on work on his father's former residence, the Lake Avenue farmhouse, near his Deer Park. He is his own architect in the present case and almost daily visits the place to give instruction to the 100 men employed there by the day, unquote. He had the farmhouse cut in two, half of it moved, and another house of just three stories with a cupola on top built in the center to join the parts. It was a white frame house with a tin roof and shutters at the windows. When the improvements were done, Elsie and William G. moved out to Lake Avenue year-round, and it was in this comfortable rather than elegant house that their five children grew up. The house was in general roomy and homey, with wallpapered plastered walls and comfortable furniture. Not antiques, but of good quality. 
On the ground floor were the living room, a billiard room, Mrs. Rockefeller's office, a dining room, a children's dining room, a library, a nursing room for the children to play in, a pantry, an enormous storeroom for food and supplies, a kitchen, a scullery room behind the kitchen, and other miscellaneous closets and small rooms. Family bedrooms and bathrooms, guest rooms, and some servants' rooms as well were on the second floor. The third contained the housekeeper's and children's nurses' rooms, other servants' rooms, and two large bedrooms with a connecting bath for their sons, Sterling and Stillman. There was also the huge water tank that served the whole house. The elevator ran from the basement to the cupola. Trunks and closets on this top story were a source of unending fascination for the children, who also liked to climb out of the windows and run around on the roof, though doing so was against the rules. Hmm. Stillman remembered that his brother, Godfrey, a radio buff, kept his equipment in one of the cupola rooms and, on that fateful night in 1912, picked up distress signals from the Titanic. He remembers, too, sighting Halley's Comet from that vantage point. The outbuildings were extensive in order to provide the family of seven with the way of life to which they were accustomed. The laundry was housed in a building separate from the main house. The stable was three stories after having been remodeled when the work was done on the house. Two families of servants lived there, and at one time one of them included ten children. The iron stalls and hardwood floors gave way in 1906 to changes allowing the space to be used for automobiles of various designs. Nearby were a big shed for tools and numerous cold frames. In addition to the outdoor tennis court, Elsie Rockefeller had an indoor court built in 1930. Still standing, it is a, it is a one-story building made of steel and stucco, complete with dressing rooms, showers, lockers, a kitchenette, and lounge, as well as the court itself. The site of the main house provided a spectacular view. It was high enough so that one could see Long Island Sound. Lawns and informal plantings surrounded the building, except for the west side where there were large vegetable and flower gardens. Porches on both the north and the south sides of the house were open and used often. The driveway led in from Lake Avenue to a porcature under which carriages and later cars could drive, keeping their passengers dry in inclement weather. Quote, the place has all the appearance of an extremely well-managed and prosperous farm, unquote, stated the Greenwich Graphic. Quote, these characteristics, together with the fact that it is beautifully situated, commanding a superb view to the north and south, render it one of the most attractive situations in Greenwich, unquote. It went on to say that the Rockefeller places, quote, are not only beautiful in themselves, but make all neighboring land more desirable and valuable, unquote. The land directly surrounding the house amounted to about 132 acres when its owner died. William G. Rockefeller, a man who did not like newspaper publicity and who claimed to be, quote, just a plain ordinary American citizen, unquote, according to the Greenwich Graphic, caught a cold while watching the Yale-Harvard football game in the fall of 1922 and died of pneumonia shortly thereafter. By that time, he had resigned his position at Standard Oil Company and had withdrawn from many of his business connections. 
He had gained for himself, however, the reputation of being a hard worker and of attending thoroughly and conscientiously to whatever duties he undertook. The New York Times reported at the time of his death that he was six feet tall, partly with sloping shoulders, and that he wore, quote, or did until recently, a small dark beard, unquote, and that, quote, he used to affect striking tall collars with big wings, unquote. His wife was not with him when he died, as she had gone to Europe to care for Godfrey, ill from typhoid fever in Belgium. Elsie Rockefeller continued to live at the Lake Avenue house, where she died at the age of 63. She had shown particular interest in the Greenwich shelter, and she actively supported not only this home for small babies, but also the Greenwich Day Nursery, established to care for children of working mothers. She contributed money to both and gave them the use of two buildings on Arch Street. Widely admired, she was described by a family friend as a woman with, quote, a lot of style and a lot of humor, unquote. Percy Rockefeller, who lived from 1878 to 1934, eight years younger than his brother, William G., also graduated from Yale and then went to work for his father. He became a leading industrialist, at one time serving as a director of 51 corporations, many of them outside the areas of his father's direct interest. In 1923, he was one of the five men in this country whose lives were insured for $3 million or more. However, he too disliked publicity. The New York Times wrote that as an individual, he, quote, remained in the background. He was little known as a personality except to a small circle of intimates, but his boldness and sagacity as a financier were felt definitely in the financial district, unquote. He married Isabel Stillman, who lived from 1876 to 1935, Elsie's sister, in 1901, and like his brother's wedding, his was an event of great social importance and public interest. Percy and Isabel decided to make Greenwich their place of primary residence and proceeded to plan a great house to be built practically on the site of old David Houston Tovel. The Greenwich graphic predicted that, quote, it will take a year to complete the building and surrounds, as it will be of more than usual pretensions, unquote. Indeed it was. The New York architects Hisson Weeks designed the house, and H.W. Dederdrick of Elizabeth, New Jersey, one of the most famous builders in the United States, directed the work. It was begun in the fall of 1907, and when completed the following year, it was billed, quote, our stateliest mansion, unquote, by the Greenwich News. It was 212 feet in breadth, 68 feet in depth, and had altogether 64 rooms. Since Percy wanted absolute safety from fire, the construction was unusual, with not a piece of wood in the outside double walls. Each of the two walls was built of hollow terracotta blocks, with four inches of airspace between them. This confined airspace was intended to make the house cooler in summer and warmer in winter and drier year-round than the ordinary construction. The fireproof walls were covered on the outside with stucco, and the roof consisted of red tile. The completed mansion cost $500,000 and was called Owen Oak Farm after the Koskab Indian chief of that name. 
The main portion of the building was four stories high and had wings on either side of two stories. There was a large portico in front with pillars of white freestone, this entrance opening into a library. To the right of the library were the dining room, the breakfast room, the kitchen and related areas, and to the left were the sitting room, the flower room, and Rockefeller's private office. A partial description of one of these rooms will give some idea of the grandeur of the house. The library was some 60 feet long and about half as wide, finished in dark weathered oak, with bookshelves of the same material built into the walls. The ceilings were paneled and hand-decorated. At either end were huge fireplaces with exquisitely carved cans, marble mantelpieces. Most of the other rooms were finished in cherry wood enameled in white. There were other fireplaces of French and Italian marble and some unusually intricate wall carving or oak carving. Floors were of fine hardwood. Since cost was no problem, the butler's pantry and kitchen, kitchens contained the most modern culinary equipment, including one white metal sink, which alone reported incurred a bill of $700. All the rooms on the second and third floors were elegantly furnished and adequately provided with 14 bathrooms and innumerable closets. Rockefeller's bathroom was some 20 feet square with a shower of marble and glass, even the dozen odd rooms in the servants' quarters were excellently appointed. In the basement were the furnished rooms, the great laundries and washrooms for the family, a servants' washroom, a huge ironing room, and a drying room to be used when weather did not permit clothes to dry outside. Three tremendous boilers with mammoth fireboxes generated the vapor which heated the house, a new system that did not require pressure. There was adequate space for carriages, besides room to store coal. Three elevators served the house, an electric one for passengers, a hand hoist for freight, and a third for use as a dumbwaiter. A 30 by 60 foot veranda on the eastern end of the building was open to breezes which afforded a magnificent view of the sound. From the site, it was possible to see the surrounding country for miles, yet it was easily accessible from Greenwich. One of the many social events which took place at the estate was the reception following the wedding of one of Rockefeller's four daughters, Isabel, to Frank Lincoln in the fall of 1925. Over 4,500 invitations were issued, and newspapers reported that thousands were present. After the ceremony at Christ Church, guests were received at Owen Oak Farm in the library, which had been decorated with Easter lilies. Fragrant lilies of the valley were placed in the dining room, where 54 people were seated for dinner. Buffet refreshments were served on the south veranda, made festive for the reception with orange trees, while the east porch was transformed into a dancing pavilion with blooming vines as the decorative feature. John D. Rockefeller drove over from Pocantico Hills for the occasion. Ceruccio Vitale landscaped Owen Oak Farm's grounds. His plans provided for spectacular plantings and gardens. Carefully selected shrubs and trees were tended by the many gardeners who weeded, trimmed, and transplanted. Horses wearing leather shoes drew the mowers, which kept the lawns cut to perfection. 
An enclosed one-acre vegetable garden supplied the family with vegetables. In 1911, Rockefeller, in a burst of enthusiasm to learn about unfamiliar trees, hired a forest engineer to set out 39 species of evergreens and hardwoods so that he could observe their characteristics and growth. Hmm. The unique part of their father's land, known as Deer Park, eventually owned jointly by William G. and Percy Rockefeller, deserves description of its own. A writer for the Greenwich Geographic wrote, quote, What nature has not done, money has secured. Beautiful drives wind in and out among the groves of trees and artificial lakes upon which swans and ducks sail gracefully along, have been made here and there about the park. Brooks wind picturesquely over, under overhanging rocks in which shining trout swim peacefully with no fear of the angler's fly. Tame deer run to visitors and eat from their hands, and silken-haired angora goats eat from fertile pastures. The western log hut, made from logs cut in Michigan expressly for the purpose, is a cool and comfortable retreat, unquote. The half-mile racetrack used for years for both racing and gymkhanas was situated in Deer Park. William Rockefeller and his two sons, as well, were excellent horsemen, and riding had become an important part of their lives. William G. had famously had famous kennel of beagles and foxhounds in the park. The dogs he bred won many ribbons, but he closed the kennels in 1910, giving the animals to the kennel master because their barking near his home got on his nerves. <laughs> Deer Park also had large stables for the workhorses used on both estates. Cows and pigs were kept there, too. The superintendent and his family lived in the park, and a carpenter's shop and enormous hay barn were used jointly by the brothers. The high wooden fence surrounding the park to keep the deer from escaping was a landmark in Greenwich for years. The striking beautiful stone walls on the Rockefeller properties are another familiar feature to residents of Greenwich. By 1899, about eight miles of walls marked roadside boundaries and divided fields. Most of the roadside walls were double, the field walls single in width. Greenwich workers employed during the spring and summer collected at the many stones from the fields and to make their work easier, used a huge ingenious machine described by the Greenwich graphic as, quote, gallows-like, unquote. They were so skillful at fitting the pieces of rock together without the use of mortar that today many of these walls remain in excellent condition. The New York Times declared in 1908 that William G. and Percy Rockefeller were preparing to buy up land in Greenwich, quote, which in area and value will perhaps outrival the vast estates of John D. Rockefeller in Terrytown, New York. It is reported that they intend to open a residential park with their own residences at, as the center, unquote. Their ideas came to fruition in the years that followed, but not exactly as they had planned. After Elsie died in 1935, 13 years after William's death, her house was torn down as it proved difficult to sell. Percy died in 1934, and Isabel died 11 months later. Since the market for such vast homes was limited, Owen Oak Farm was demolished three years, years later. Pneumatic hammers, steam shovels, and dynamite were used. Park Bernay Galleries auctioned off 
oriental rugs, early Flemish and French tapestries, French salon suites, Renaissance carved walnut furniture, and Chinese porcelains, silver, crystal, and paintings. The development of a residential park, quote-unquote, has, though without its two grand houses, proceeded over the years. Small estates and other parcels of land were sold with restrictions set and building plans approved by the Rockefeller family. This far-sighted policy was instituted before the town adopted such restrictions of its own. Thus, the sale of lots and the construction of substantial homes has taken place in an orderly manner on an enormous amount of prime property in central Greenwich. The business acumen, financial resources, and foresight of William Rockefeller and his two sons, combined with their love of Greenwich, have left a legacy to the town which its residents continue to enjoy today. Well, The Great Estates, Greenwich, Connecticut, 1880-1930 book by the Junior League of Greenwich is available for borrowing through the Greenwich Library system. You can visit greenwichlibrary.org to search. Now, if you would like to acquire a copy, visit the Greenwich Historical Society's Museum Store at greenwichhistory.org or call 203-869-6899 or contact your favorite book's vendor. What a great idea for a holiday gift this season. You're in for a pleasant surprise at Coffee for Good, located in the 1856 Solomon Mead Italianate-styled stone mansion at 48 Maple Avenue behind the Second Congregational Church. Coffee for Good has quickly emerged as one of Greenwich, Connecticut's top coffee houses. Its success is driven by a never-ending commitment to quality, and inclusion. Coffee for Good shines as a unique nonprofit partnership between the Second Congregational Church and Abelis. It employs and trains people with disabilities through a self-sustaining platform so they can thrive in the community. The 1856 Solomon Mead House provides a 19th century style hip and unpretentious historical setting that evokes a setting filled with diverse people who are all inspired. Delightful staff, Super-friendly baristas, great coffee, pastries, and more. Coffee for Good provides free Wi-Fi, free parking, indoor and outdoor seating, with a relaxed local vibe that has become a popular study spot and destination for informal business meetings and gatherings. My friends, take it from me. The word about this gem has gotten around. Located in the historic 1856 Solomon Mead Italianate-styled stone mansion at 48 Maple Avenue in Greenwich, behind the Second Congregational Church, all part of the Putnam Hill Historic District and listed on the National Register of Historic Places, Coffee for Good is open daily, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m., except Sundays. You can learn more at coffeeforgood.org. You 
are listening to the Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast hosted by Jeffrey Bingham Mead. That's me, a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of the town of Greenwich, long known as the gateway to New England. The Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast is made possible by Peter F. Alexander, Landscape Architect of Site Design Associates, the Long Island Sound Institute, the Ambassador Museum United States of America, Kevin M.J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and listeners like you everywhere. Thank you. Life and Art, the Greenwich Paintings of John Henry Twachman at the Greenwich Historical Society on October 19th, 2022, and it would be closing on January 22nd, 2023. My friends, this long-awaited exhibition of artworks by American Impressionist painter John Henry Twachman, who lived from 1853 to 1902, presents a new view into the artist's life and home in Greenwich, where he lived with his family from 1890 to 1899. The exhibition, curated by art historian and Twachman scholar Lisa N. Peters, PhD, features artworks on loan from museum and private collections across the country, offering a unique glimpse into the artworks Twachman made, which depict his Greenwich home and his distinctive environs and the way the artist shaped the land to meet his artistic needs. Afternoon in the Reading Room, Twachman, in his own words, will be held on Sunday, January 8th, 2023, from 2 until 4 p.m. Join Greenwich Historical Society archives and curatorial staff for an afternoon in the Library and Archives Reading Room, delving deeper into the words and life of painter John Henry Twachman and exploring his ties to the Holly family in Coscob. My friends, to learn more about life and art, the Greenwich paintings of John Henry Twachman, please go online to GreenwichHistory.org. Well, my friend, Savannah Selleck, according to an article that just appeared in the Greenwich Sentinel, got fed up with the trip and decided to build his own grist mill just east of Round Hill Road on his 47-acre farm, wrote Greenwich realtor Mark Pruner in his column published on the 16th of December 2022 in the Greenwich Sentinel. Not only would he get flour for his family, but he'd get paid for providing a valuable service to the neighboring farmers in North Greenwich. Well, the Savannah Selleck Grist Mill, of course, is still there over on Old Mill Road in, um, in, in the Round Hill section of town. The Grist Mill dates from 1796, and it is listed on the National Register of Historic Places. Well, thanks to Mark Pruner and to Granite Sentinel, I can say that there is a new initiative underway uh, to preserve the Savannah Selleck Grist Mill in partnership with the Greenwich Historical Society. And what I'd like to do today is to share with you uh, this article that just appeared um, and written by Mark Pruner. The column title is Time for Greenwich to Put Its Nose to the Grindstone. Well, that's a pretty clever um, headline. Let's get started, shall we? In 1796, Greenwich was a very different place. It was a farming community. Our farms sent their produce to New York City via regular packet boats that left from a dock just below the Greenwich Historical Society's Bush Holly House on Strickland Road in Cascob. If you happened to be a farmer in North Greenwich who liked their daily bread, you had to make a long trip down to the mill in Byram 
to have your grain ground into flour. So Venizelic got fed up with the trip and decided to build his own gristmill just east of Round Hill Road on his 47-acre farm. Not only would he get flour for his family, but he'd get paid for providing a valuable service to the neighboring farmers in North Greenwich. A gristmill was a major undertaking. It had to be sturdy enough to survive the quote-unquote daily grind, and therefore it was built out of large chestnut and oak timbers. You also had to build a dam to have a steady stream of water. Building a mill wasn't cheap, and Sylvanus had to sell part of his farm to raise the money to build a sturdy mill that would last. Over the ensuing years, tons of grist, grain of various types that had had its chafe removed, would be brought to Sylvanus's grist mill. The grist would feed from a hopper down between a runner stone and bedstone. These stones were wrapped in iron belts and weighed thousands of pounds. As the runner stone rotated, the grain would be ground to various coarseness, from fair to middling to fine. The flour would fall out of the edge of the grindstones into a meal sprout, and then into a flour bag. This wasn't a passive process. Savannah was required to, quote, keep his nose to the grindstone, unquote, and constantly adjust the pressure of the runner stone on the bedstone. If there was too much pressure, then the friction would burn the flour and possibly even lead to a fire. His nose near the grindstone gave him the first indication that he needed to let up on the pressure to properly grind the grist. It was a little slower, but no, but no wanted flour, uh, toasted flour. However, if he let up too much pressure too much, the flour would be too coarse, and then he ran it between his thumb and fourth finger. The quote-unquote rule of thumb would tell him that the flour would have to be reground finer. In 1846, 50 years after the mill had started grinding its first grain, Edwin Knapp bought Sylvanus's farm, barn, and grist mill at auction. The original mill had a vertical water wheel that was powered by the water flowing along Converse Brook. In 1860, after 14 years of ownership, Edwin Knapp went high-tech. He took off the old vertical water wheel and installed a state-of-the-art horizontal turbine at the base of the mill. The remnants of iron pipe that fed the stream water to this turbine can still be seen going from the brook to the mill. He also put a shed dormer in the place of the original water wheel to provide more storage space. The mill continued to grind wheat, corn, oats, and rye until Edwin Knapp's death in 1895, but that was the end of the operating meal. His daughter and son-in-law, who inherited the farm, decided that the miller's life was not for them. What, a rem what is remarkable is that this mill, last operated in 1895, is still there, now located behind a fence on the eponymous Old Mill Road. In its heyday, there were hundreds of mills across Connecticut, most built on the post and beam model of this mill with heavy braces in the thick framing to stand up to the constant vibration of thousands of pounds of grinding millstones. Because Savannah sold part of his farm to build the extra solid mill, it meant that it is still there 20, uh, 226 years later. 
He built what is now possibly the oldest commercial structure in town. Savannah Cellar Grist Mill is one of only two surviving 18th century mills in Connecticut, and it needs help. The last couple of decades have been hard on the mill. The roof leaks, the back wall of the 1860 dormer was damaged in the Hurricane Ida flood, and old age is creeping into everything. A lot of funds have been spent to temporarily stabilize the mill, but it badly needs much more work to last another 100 or 200 years. A, quote, Friends of the Selleck Mill, unquote, committee has been formed consisting of Deborah Mecki, executive director of the Greenwich Historical Society, myself, that would be Mark Pruner, representing the Round Hill Association, Will Keyes, and Nancy Stube. The Greenwich Historical Society has created a donation page for those of you that want to keep Greenwich's history alive. You can go to GreenwichHistory.org and click on support, quote-unquote, then donate, and scroll down to the Sylvanus Selleck Gristmill Fund. Or, if you are reading this, go online, and he provides a uh, uh, the web address as GreenwichHistory.org forward slash Sylvanus dash Selleck dash Gristmill forward slash. While there, you can check out the very cool video that Alexander Stube, a student at the King's School, did about the Savannah Sally Grismill. By the way, I've seen this video. It's very, very well done. His videos had much to do with reactivating interest in preserving the Selleck Mill. And if you like these articles about Greenwich real estate that I've been writing for the last several years, you could throw in a little extra for that cause. And he has a little smiley emoji. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, why not do a shameless plug? Why not? Yeah. So anyway, and that is um, by Mark Pruner. He is a realtor with Compass. Um, by the way, if you would like to reach him to talk to him about the friends of the Selleck Mill, um, I have his phone number here. It is 203-817-2871. That's 203-817-2871. You can also email him at Mark. Dot pruner at compass.com. Well, this gentleman was a lawyer, he was a writer, he was a gifted tor- storyteller, if I could say it, and his name was Frederick Augustus Hubbard. He was a judge, and he published a column in the Greenwich Press called The Judge's Corner. His remarkable life spammed the end of the 19th century and the first third of the 20th century here in Greenwich, Connecticut. Interestingly enough, he used a pseudonym called Ezekiel Lemondale, I have no idea where he got it from, when writing about what he called Cracker Barrel stuff through his column, The The Judge's Corner. Now, years ago, Frank Nicholson of here in Greenwich collected Judge Hubbard's uh, articles and he published them in compendium form in a book called Greenwich History, The Judge's Corner, 150 Vintage Newspaper Columns by Frederick A. Hubbard, selected, edited, and indexed by Frank Nicholson. And we are grateful for that. On today's show, I'm going to share with you column number 91. It's dated December 11, 1930, and it was published in the Greenwich Press. Its title, Motion Pictures, Outgrowth of Earlier Inventions 40 Years Ago, Marking Towns and Keeping Up with Appearances, and Seed Propagation. Hmm. Well, possibly immature youth is the excuse for a letter which seeks publication and asserts that the movies which she adores are a very recent invention. 
she terms them, quote, as only about 20 years old, unquote. Doubtless, she has not seen more than 20 years herself. But they actually go back to the date of her mother's birth, and possibly earlier, and yet this correspondent is not alone in her estimate of the age of this wonderful modern invention. The first public showing of what was then called a vitoscope was at Coster and Biles Music Hall at Broadway and 34th Street. Announcement was made in the advertising columns of the daily papers, quite as the talkies were more recently announced. But there was much more skepticism. So many wonderful things have been done in the past 40 years that at present it is difficult to astonish the public. But in those days, the announcement that a railroad train would be shown going 50 miles an hour and all the activities of Coney Island Beach with its dashing waves and hurrying thongs was regarded by many as a, quote, P.T. Barnum hoax, unquote. To the writer, the prospect of seeing Edison, who was expected to be present, was a greater attraction than the show itself. It was a fine evening, and the house was packed. Silk hats and evening clothes were plentiful. Even in the present day, it is sometimes, for a moment, hard to realize that the moving and talking pictures are not really alive. But then the rushing of a train head-on, apparently into the room, almost produced a shrieking panic. <laughs> As the breaking waves of Coney Island suddenly appeared, those in the front rows actually jumped from their seats and moved down the aisles to avoid the spray. <laughs> and the writer is not ashamed to admit that he joined the retreating crowd. It was an experience never to be forgotten. The selectmen are to be commended for the care of the marker under the soldier's monument, indicating in white letters, formed by white paint stones, sta laid onto the earth the name of the town. It has been freshly painted, and the grass has been kept during the summer from obscuring it. It is very much appreciated by the traveling public as they are always interested to know the name of the town that they are passing through, and very often they are unable to determine it. <laughs> but the practice of displaying town signs is increasing. In eastern and northern New England, town boundaries along highways are marked but so small that from a swiftly moving motor car they are barely legible. The name in or near the center of towns is more appreciated. In Wakefield, Rhode Island, the name is in white seashells, indicating the product of the nearby salt water. In some other places, different colored flowers artistically arranged in a bed indicate the name of the place. While our Monument Park is a choice spot, other parts of Putnam Avenue are not so well kept. Newspapers, sheets of wrapping paper, and cigarette containers, doubtless thrown from passing automobiles, are allowed to collect in the gutters and against the fences. Greenwich Avenue is kept quite free from such blemishes by the occasional visit of the street cleaner, who with his brush and portable can finds but little to deposit therein since the departure of the horse. Perhaps this territory might be enlarged to include Putnam Avenue. Hmm. An amusing letter in the basket tells of the use of fertilizer taken without cost from the Grass Island disposal plant. Our correspondent freely mixed this material with topsoil in preparation for a new lawn. To his great surprise, he got a very prolific 
crop of tomatoes, every kind from the diminutive yellow cherry tomatoes to the mammoth one of the ponderosa class. His grass seed was smothered out of existence, and his crop of tomatoes scarcely recompensed him for his delayed improvement. And now he is wondering if another spring will not duplicate his present experience. <laughs> Agriculturalists find it very interesting to study seed propagation. Sometimes it is present uh, mystery that cannot be readily solved. But there is no mystery surrounding the dilemma of our correspondent. The prolific peach trees that are growing in an abandoned chicken yard can be traced to the overflowing garbage can. But no one has been able to satisfactorily account for the presence of English golden iris that covers a patch of swamp between Kingston and Wickford Junction, not far from Narragansett Bay. Many years ago, it took possession of that swamp and turned it into a golden bed, unlike any other in America. We have iris aplenty, but not the golden species so often seen in England. We have been unable to find anyone who can tell when the golden iris bed first appeared. Perhaps some follower of Roger Williams brought the seed from his native place and scattered it as a memorial of his old home. Be that as it may, its presence is an unresolved mystery in Rhode Island, and that is signed by Frederick A. Hubbard. Now, let me mention this. Uh, Frank Nicholson pointed this out about uh, Judge Hubbard. He says, One feels after reading him that here was Greenwich's Renaissance man, traveler, sportsman, epicure, observer of the contemporary scene, arborist, botanist, critic, humorist, naturalist, and oracle, a profiler of people, a recorder of events, a describer of places, even a militant protester, and a sound recorder of various aspects of Greenwich history, unquote. My friends, Greenwich history, the, Greenwich, the, the Judge's Corner, 150 vintage newspaper columns by Frederick A. Hubbard, selected, edited, and indexed by Frank Nicholson, is available for borrowing from the Greenwich Library System. And you can do that from the comfort of your office or home by visiting GreenwichLibrary.org. Erwin Edwards, and later his brother L.B. Edwards, were columnists in the early 20th century whose articles about Greenwich, Connecticut's history were published under the headline, Greenwich Life as it is and was. How Christmas has become more and more celebrated was published in the 22nd of December, 1922 edition, that's 100 years ago, of the Greenwich News and Graphic. Christmas, Merry Christmas, has it really come again, with its joys and with its sorrows, with its merriment and pain? There's a miner in the carol, and cypress in the wreath. Yes, Christmas is here again, and it will probably be more generally observed than for several years, and more than it was before the Great War upset the world. Conditions are rapidly getting back to normal. Strikes and rumors of strikes are less disturbing the serenity of the business world, and altogether, there are many good reasons for a more joyous Christmas. Never have the Greenwich stores carried such assortments of all kinds of articles, expensive and not costly in price, especially for the Christmas trade, as 
have been displayed this season. And with the slogan adopted by Greenwich storekeepers, quote, trade in Greenwich, unquote, has resulted in keeping much of the trade in Greenwich that would, but for their united efforts, have gone out of town. Forty years ago, there were only a few stores and the stocks were limited, the storekeepers fearing that to put, uh, put in large varieties of doubt about selling the Christmas goods, so they usually confined themselves to stock that would be saleable all the year. There were a couple of dry goods stores, two drug stores, a jewelry store, and a little five and ten cent store that lettered M. Neal had opened in the store where L.B. Wilbur has his gentleman's furnishing store, a bakery and hardware store comprised about all there were of any account, except the several groceries and markets. Most of the trading was done out of town, those of moderate means going to Stamford and Portchester, and the wealthy to New York to make their Christmas purchases. But the increased interest in Christmas and its extensive observance by the congregations of churches, other than Episcopal and Catholic, are noteworthy. Half a century ago, Thanksgiving and fast days were the important days uh, in those churches. The pastor usually made special preparation to discourse on some patriotic topic with the first, second, and thirdly that would take from an hour and a half in delivery. Now how different. The churches are beautifully trimmed and the Sunday schools given fine Christmas celebrations. The music has also been made a special feature for a number of years. A quartet choir of the Second Congregational Church, with the assistance of a choir, of a chorus rather, rendering the oratorio of the Messiah the Sunday before Christmas. But it was in Christ's Church and St. Mary's Church that great preparations for Christmas and Easter observance were made years ago, as they are at the present time. Probably the little frame Christ School that stood on Putnam Hill, just east of the location of the present Storms House, that was blown down in the gale of 1823 or 1824, was trimmed way back in Revolutionary days, and also the frame building that replaced it but located a considerable distance west of the site of the first church, the timbers of which were used in building a house for Charles Seaman on Maple Avenue when that edifice was taken down at the time of Reverend B. M. Yarrington induced his congregation to have the Gothic stone church built in 1852, where the rectory is now located, and it was considered the finest, finest country Episcopal church in Connecticut at that time. This church was always beautifully and artistically trimmed for Christmas, but never by professionals. The work was always done by the loving and willing hands of members of the congregation. A, the ground pine and the other greens were gathered in the wood hereabouts, usually by Denham Palmer and John Duff, two of the, of the prominent men, of the church, and the ladies would meet several days before Christmas and tie the ropes of green and make the wreaths that the men of the congregation would assist them in hanging. And when their work was completed, and work it was, there was not a more attractively trimmed church anywhere, and that was saying a good deal. That was the program for decorating the church for Christmas. 
for the 55 years that the Reverend B.M. Yarrington was rector. The church, the music rather, was not elaborate, but appropriate for Christmas for 35 or 40 years ago. There was not so much attention paid to music in Greenwich as there has been since the late Mrs. Carl E. Martin came to Greenwich to live nearly, if not quite, 30 years ago. She took charge of the music and organized a mixed choir. And although the organ was old and small, she got results in singing that attracted the attention not only of the congregation, but the congregations of other churches. And there was noticeable improvement in the music of other churches also at that, after that time. Mrs. Martin was a genius, and she was often seen to accompany the choir with one hand on the organ while she directed with the other, and under her direction, an unusually fine Christmas, fine musical service was arranged for Christmas. The Sunday school celebration took place on Christmas Eve, a Christmas tree being placed in the chancel. The Sunday school teachers and scholars sang carols, and the gifts were afterwards distributed. When Reverend Dr. Thompson became the rector some 27 years ago, the children's Christmas tree exercises were held in Ray's Hall. Some kind of entertainment was provided, like sleight-of-hand professional entertainers from New York being engaged, and an evening of real pleasure given to the members of the Sunday school. There was also a Santa Claus who distributed the presents. One entertainment attracted others besides the members of the congregation and Sunday school, and the hall was crowded. Boxes of candy were distributed to every child present, and after a while there were more of the other children in the hall than there were of the Sunday school. And as those entertainments made considerable extra labor and expense, they were given up. The trimming of the large edifice has been going on for the past week. It requires a lot more time and labor than it did to decorate the smaller church, but the work has been done in the same way by members of the congregation, and the church is always beautifully trimmed, as it always has been for Christmas. In recent years, the other churches have been trimmed with ferns and leaves for Christmas, and special services for the Sunday school held and music of Christmas time rendered by the excellent choirs in each, and the natal day of him who came to provide peace and goodwill to all men, quote-unquote, on earth, fittingly observed by the churches of Greenwich, as well as those everywhere else in the Christian nation. Well, my friends, Rick Hansen, local history librarian at the Greenwich Library, has announced the Heritage with Hoopla five-part series. Why not start the new year by delving into your genealogy and family history? Join us as attendees wander through Hoopla's Discovering Your Roots, an introduction to genealogy using the great courses series. The series is free to the public. No registration is required. Seating is limited to 18 and seating is made on a first come first served basis. The first workshop, Ancestors in Ship Passenger Lists, 
It is Wednesday, January 4th, 2023, 2 p.m. to 3 p.m. in the Learning Lab. Learn how to make sense of passenger arrival records, the single most precious document for reconstructing your ancestors' voyage to North America. Using several key guideposts and sources, including colonial land records and immigrant directories, you can uncover facts about arrivals from colonial days through the 1950s. The second workshop, Ancestors in Naturalization Records, will be held on Wednesday, January 11th, 2023, 2 p.m. to 3 p.m. in the Learning Lab. Did your immigrant ancestors become U.S. citizens? Did they procrastinate or not naturalize at all? Dr. Collada reveals how naturalization records can answer these and other biographical questions. You'll focus on adapting your research to three major naturalization periods prior to 1790, 1790 to 1906, and 1906 to today. The next workshop, the Genealogical Proof Standard will be held on Wednesday, January 18th, 2023, 2 p.m. to 3 p.m. in the Learning Lab. Strengthen your skills as a family history detective in this in-depth look at the Genealogical Proof Standard, the five-step process that certified genealogists use for proving ancestral identities, relationships, life events, and other biographical details. Then, wrap up the lecture with a fascinating look at the nature of evidence. The next workshop is Ancestors in the County Courthouse that will be held on Wednesday, January 25th, 2023, 2 p.m. to 3 p.m. in the Learning Lab. Discover how to work your way through the courthouse records of the county where your ancestors resided. Using the two most common types of courts, circuit and chancery, you'll examine how to read courthouse materials, including probate packets, vital records, tax rolls, and even colonial era records such as indentures and apprenticeships. And the final workshop will be held on February 1st, 2023, and that one is Ancestors and State Records. Now again, that will be on Wednesday, February 1st, 2023, from 2 p.m. to 3 p.m. in the Learning Lab. Good genealogists always take advantage of local sources outside the courthouse as well, including state archives, which hold records that resulted in the administration of state laws. Here, you'll learn how to tap into the information found in original sources, such as census and military records, and derivative sources, including maps and newspapers. As with all workshops, please arrive early as the program will start right on time. Each week, attendees will watch a 30-minute genealogy video in Hoopla, followed by a discussion and practice of the techniques learned. Participants and attendees are asked, please, to bring your Greenwich Library card and PIN to access Hoopla. Program Contact, uh, contact is Carla Sherman at 203-625-6560 or Rick Hansen at 203-622-7948. Again, this is the Heritage with Hoopla series at the Greenwich Library. Attendees will wander through Hoopla's Discovering Your Roots, an introduction to genealogy using the Great Source series. This is free and open to the public. There is no res- registration required. You are encouraged to come to all of the of the workshops. And again, uh, it is always first come, first served. Engaging Ideas with historian Dr. Ashley Farmer is an online event at the Greenwich Library open to the public on Wednesday. 
Wednesday, January 11, 2023, from 7 p.m. to 8 p.m. Farmer discusses her research of black women's intellectual history, including research strategies and primary source databases. Greenwich Library subscribes to ProQuest's historical black newspaper collection, offering essential primary source content and editorial perspectives of the most distinguished African-American newspapers in the United States. Dr. Ashley D. Farmer is a historian of black women's history, intellectual history, and radical politics. She is currently an associate professor in the departments of history and African diaspora studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Her book, Remaking Black Power, How Black Women Transformed an Era, is the first comprehensive study of black women's intellectual production and activism in the black power era. She is also the co-editor of New Perspectives on the Black Intellectual Tradition, an anthology that examines central themes within the Black intellectual tradition. Her next book, Queen Mother Audley Moore, Mother of Black Nationalism, which is forthcoming from the University of North Carolina Press, will be the first biography of one of the most influential yet understudied activists and thinkers of the 20th century. Farmer earned a Bachelor of Arts degree from Spelman College, a Master of Arts in History, and a PhD in African American Studies from Harvard University. Dr. Farmer lives in Austin, Texas. The event URL will be sent via registration email. There are 39 slots available. Now, for more information, my friends, please visit GreenwichLibrary.org. The program contact is Rick Hansen. He is the local uh, Greenwich, uh, Greenwich Library local history historian, uh, or librarian, rather, sorry. <laughs> and um, his contact uh, phone number is 203-622-7948. You can also reach him by email at r. Hansen, that's R-H-A-N-S-E-N, at GreenwichLibrary.org. My friends, are you looking for a keepsake Christmas holiday gift for a family member? Well, I sure hope you are. Baby boomers and their families will love these free verse stories. What am I talking about? Well, Mianus Village by Jack T. Scully captures what it was like growing up in the 1950s and 1960s. This highly acclaimed collection is now available as an audiobook as well as on paperback. Jack, by the way, was a guest of mine, and uh, it is a wonderful book, a very, very heartwarming one. Um, and um, it, it talks about Greenwich people after winning World War II, the greatest generation of Americans who came marching home and sired the baby boomer generation that, well, quite frankly, I belong to. <laughs> anyway, Maya's Village, it's a, it's a fantastic book. Um, it is, as I said, available on audiobook as well as paperback. Um, and um, click the, well, I have a, a website for you where you can purchase the book. Go to author Jack T. Scully, that's spelled S-C-U-L-L-Y dot com forward slash buy B-U-Y dash book B-O-O-K. So author Jack T. Scully dot com forward slash buy dash book. It's a great one, everybody, and it makes a fantastic Christmas or holiday gift. Well, ladies and gentlemen, it's time for Crimes and Misdemeanors. This is the segment of the show in which we continue to recognize the 125th anniversary of the founding of the Greenwich Police Department, which was 
last year. Uh, but um, this, <laughs> uh, we hate to say it, but um, in Greenwich's history, it was not all um, uh, wonderful and, uh, and uh, law-abiding. There was crime that was committed here in town. My source on the one that I'm going to uh, give you now is from the Greenwich Graphic. Uh, that was published on Saturday, November 28, 1896. Uh, the uh, headline is, Caught the Country Burglars, a Gang of Thieves Rounded Up in Brooklyn. Mrs. Cordes Recovers Some of Her Stolen Property. And the story goes as follows. For some time, the country towns within 100 miles of New York have been annoyed by burglars. Efforts to catch them have proved futile. These midnight thieves were generally successful and carried away with them a good deal of booty. Within the past two weeks, Captain O'Brien of the New York Detective Force has succeeded in, quote-unquote, rounding up in Brooklyn a lot of these burglars and raiding their headquarters. He captured about 30 men and two women, members of an organized gang of country burglars, and he recovered about $10,000 worth of stolen property, mostly silverware. It was the brilliant work of the New York detectives that brought the gang to bay. The clue, the plot, the capture, if written in full, would rifle the dime novel tales of Old Sleuth, the detective. <laughs> it was through a woman that um, a detective, disguised as a tough, got the clue. She offered for sale a $200 pawn ticket for $75. He bought it, followed the woman, saw where she went, arrested her, and then came the disclosure. And another woman connected with the gang came out because she was offended by one of them, some of the secrets. They were found to be a well-organized crowd of thieves working in a systematic way with everything arranged beforehand for getting away with the booty. They were, most of them, young men and always heavily armed. They were brave, desperate, and reckless, would do anything, take a life if necessary, to gain their end. It was noticeable that they always poisoned the dogs at the houses which they robbed. This was the gang that has been in Greenwich a number of times within the past year and whose tracks could never be discovered. Now it is known why. The recent raid in Greenwich was at Mrs. Cordes's. She lived in Mr. Samuel Allen's house on the Field Point Road. They got into Mr. John Dayton's, but were frightened away. They tried to enter Mr. Seaman Mead's house, but he heard them and called from an upper window. They fired at him and then disappeared. They poisoned Mrs. Cordes's two dogs. One of them died. Mr. Dayton's dog became sick and died the next day after their visit. Mrs. Cordes went to police headquarters where the stolen goods were brought and recognized her stolen spoons. They were marked EDC and FC. About half the silverware taken was hers was recovered, with prospects of getting nearly all of it. When Mrs. Cordes's domestic was shown the picture of six of the thieves, she picked out two of them and said, quote, They came to the house a day or two before the robbery and asked for something to eat, unquote. The police have not got the entire gang, but hope to secure them all. If they do not, they will have succeeded in breaking up a desperate band of men as terrorized the country towns in many years. In 1906, or precisely on October 25th of that year, the Hartford Current published the following story from Greenwich. Its uh, headline, Used Chloroform, Then Ransacked Greenwich Residents Another House Entered. 
And uh, the, um, let's see, the date of the story is actually October 24th of that year. Burglaries at the summer homes of two New Yorkers were reported to the police this afternoon. One of these is alleged to have occurred at the residence of E.W. Russell of New York during the absence of the family. According to the maid, she and the cook were alone in the house when a stranger who was described as a tall man with a sandy beard and wearing a dark overcoat knocked at the door. The maid opened the door and, it is said, the man then struck her, knocked her down, and chloroformed her, after which he secured $55 from the maid's room and several hundred dollars worth of jewelry from Mrs. Russell's room and disappeared. The maid was discovered by the cook, who summoned medical assistance and the police, to whom the maid told her story. The other burglary is said to have been at the house of Dr. H. Brindley of New York. The house is located at Riverside, where it is said a large part of the household goods had been packed ready for removal to New York. And on, uh, let's see, on uh, April 2nd, uh, uh, 1907, the following um, criminal event, if you want to call it that, um, uh, took place in Greenwich. And this was again also reported by the Hartford Current. Um, and the headline is Burglaries in Greenwich. Four houses have been entered the past week. One successful burglary and four attempts to enter houses in this place last night were reported today. The house of W.H.S. Lockwood, I think that's probably William Lockwood, was entered last night, and after helping themselves to liquors, the thieves made off with Mrs. Lockwood's sealskin coat, valued at $200. A man attempted to enter the house of A.A. Rundle by crawling through the bedroom window of Mrs. Adelaide Rundle when the young woman awoke and ordered the intruder to go away. The man hastily obeyed. The other homes which the thieves attempted to enter were those of Cornell Woolley, Cornelius Mead, and Frederick Holly. Well, as we wind down today's show, the question begs, how did the people of Greenwich, Connecticut celebrate Christmas history? Well, I'll share with you a sampling of that. And uh, I think that we'll start with, this is an editorial that uh, was published in the Greenwich News and Graphic on Friday, December 22nd, 1922. So we're talking about 100 years ago, almost to the day. The editorial reads as follows. Among the various rites and ceremonies that have come down to us through the ages, the celebration of Christmas stands out uniquely as appealing to the whole world. Our Christmas customs have had various origins. The Roman Catholic and English churches have always made much of the day. The Puritans discarded the custom, but the Dutch introduced it into this country, a fact which accounts for Santa Claus and the Teutonic flavor of our celebrations. Anyway, Christmas, uh, it continues, as it exists today, and again, this is 100 years ago, is preeminently a children's day, and in an American home without children, it loses much of its original significance. As for them, that we keep up uh, the customs, and for them, we provide the trees and the gifts, it is to them and to those of childlike hearts that the story of the Christ child appears. Quote, when shepherds watch their flocks by night all seated on the ground, unquote. However mixed the origin and however the various the sources of the customs that prevail, happy is the day and blessed are they who make 
the most of it. Well, that sounds really, really nice. This comes from the January 5th, 1923 edition of the Greenwich News and Graphic. Let's see what we have here. All right, well, under the headline of Good Christmas Work, we have the following. Holiday activities of the First Methodist Church. The Women's Club of the Church sent 32 baskets of fruit to their sick and shut-ins. The cantata, God's Gift of Love, quote-unquote, given by a large chorus with William Strong as director and Mrs. Allen Holder at the organ, was most successful and enjoyed by many. The Sunday School Festival and Christmas Tree on last Thursday evening was a great success. Each child received a gift, a box of homemade candy, and an orange, and greatly enjoyed Santa's visit and the Christmas tree. A box of gold was presented to Reverend and Mrs. Martin from the church. Members of the home department received oranges and boxes of homemade candy, and ladies having made over 30 boxes. The watch night service was held... Sunday evening, the sick and shut-ins of the borough, that would be the borough of Greenwich, were serenaded in the early part of the evening. The church service, with singing by the large chorus, began at 8.30, after which refreshments were served in the chapel. Following this psalm service was led by Morris Gale. Then came a short address by Reverend Martin leading up to the New Year's resolutions, all engaged in silent prayer while crossing the line from the old to the new year. The service closed by singing the doxology. The teacher training class entertained with a Christmas tree and party at the Parsonage. Members of the church school who are attending college and were in Greenwich for the holidays. Also, Mr. Palayo, a student from Manila, and that would be Manila as in the capital of the Philippines. What else do we have here? Ah, yes, under the, um, under the headline of Christmas Cantata, Noel splendidly given by Choir of Christ Church. That would be, of course, Christ Church Greenwich. Noel, a Christmas Cantata by St. Sands, was finally given by the vested Choir of the of Christ Church last Sunday afternoon at four o'clock under the direction of Dr. Carl E. Martin. The soloists of the church are Mrs. Betty Valentine, soprano, Miss Caroline Finney Springer, contralto, Harold B. Bennett, tenor, and Frederick Simmons, baritone. The trio for soprano, tenor, and baritone, as well as the two contralto solos in the work by Miss Springer were admirably sung. Miss Daisy Donovan also assisted in the quintet as second soprano. The chorus numbers were sung in a most praiseworthy manner, says the article. One of the delightful features of the service was a solo, The Virgin's Lullaby, by Buck, sung by Miss Springer during the offertory. Choir fully sustained the high standard it had acquired in church music and the splendid rendition of the work left a most favorable impression upon the large congregation present. What else do we have? Ah, yes, this is in Port Chester, um, who sang the Messiah, according to the uh, headline of the article, Port Chester Choral Club's second annual concert. Many Greenwich people attended the second annual concert of the Port Chester Choral Club in the high school auditorium Port Chester last evening, when Handel's Oratorio of the Messiah was given by the Chorus of 80. The spacious auditorium was filled to capacity. Frederick C. Studwell, baritone soloist of the Second Congregational Church, was the conductor, and Mrs. Frederick C. Studwell, organist and choir director of the Second Congregational Church, 
was the pianist. She was assisted in the accompanying work by several musicians from the Philharmonic Society of New York. Seldom have such splendid solos been heard together in Greenwich or Portchester as those who rendered the several solos in the work. They were Mrs. Louise Hubbard Soprano, Miss Nevada Van Der Veer Contralto, Richard Crooks Tenor, and Fred Panton Panton Baritone. All are members of the Quartet Choir of the Brick Presbyterian Church, Fifth Avenue, New York, and their interpretation of the solos, as well as their quartet work, was most commendable. The chorus, which comprised many of the leading singers in Greenwich, Porchester, and Rye, was excellent in their work reflected much credit upon Mr. Studwell. A number of prominent men and women of the three townships acted as patrons and patronesses. Our final story of Christmas as it was celebrated in Greenwich. Um, we're going to skip a number of years, of course, and, uh, and this is from December 16, 1940, and this is from the uh, Greenwich Time. A crowd of 1,500 greet Santa Claus when he parachutes to Bruce Park from plane. Well, how about that? <laughs> All right. First selectman Wilbur M. Peck presents him Key to Greenwich, and the story goes as follows. Jolly, roly-poly Santa Claus, a perfect picture of health and happiness, well, (laughs) arrived in Greenwich Saturday afternoon for the holiday season and was greeted by a crowd of more than 1,500. Mr. Claus showed his ability at pursuits other than toy-making when he leaped from his Arctic plane, which hurtled over Greenwich for the occasion and parachuted neatly onto the baseball field at Bruce Park. What a welcome it was. Police motorcycles and patrol cars kept the crowd from surging onto the baseball field until after the landing. Once Santa hit the ground, the kids virtually mobbed him. I'll bet. His Arctic plane flew directly over the field, dropped to a low altitude, and Santa came floating down. Santa's plane was piloted by Johnny Marr, Greenwich's hotel proprietor and aviator. Hello, children. I'm glad to be in Greenwich, Santa immediately shouted to the throng which milled around him. Policemen helped him off of his parachute straps. He addressed his little holiday friends thusly, quote, I will be with you all of the few days at the various schools, unquote. Santa's program until Christmas Eve calls for a visit to every one of the Greenwich schools where he will meet and talk with his little charges. Presents will be given and Christmas movies will be shown. On Christmas Eve, of course, he must take his leave and return to the North Pole where he had um, deer sleigh and visited every nook and corner of the world before the dawn on Christmas Day. Following his landing in Greenwich Saturday, Santa was whisked away from the baseball field in a police car to the auto-drawn float at the Bruce Park Clubhouse. Santa took his seat on the float and was drawn through the park, down Bruce Avenue to Greenwich Avenue and then up Greenwich Avenue to the town hall. There he was officially welcomed by First Selectman Wilbur M. Peck. Large crowds greeted him along the way. (laughs) Mr. Peck presented Santa Claus with an inscribed, quote, key to the city, unquote. The larger golden-colored key had an inscription which, which read, quote, from Greenwich to Santa Claus, unquote. The float will be used until Christmas to draw Santa Claus to the schools where he will visit all the children. His program began this morning when he visited the Greenwich Academy. 
He was to visit Greenwich Country Day School at 2.15 this afternoon and the North Mianus Community Center at 4.45 o'clock. So there you go. And that is uh, from, or was uh, published in the Greenwich Time on December 16th, 1940. Thank you, my friends, for tuning in to the 20th of December 2022 episode of the Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast. This weekly podcast is hosted by me. My name is Jeffrey Bingham Mead. I'm a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut, long known as the Gateway to New England. The town was founded on July 18th, 1640. Since those early, humble beginnings, Greenwich, Connecticut has grown to become, in the 21st century, one of America's most notable and attractive communities, a special place we call home. The Greenwich Town for All Seasons Show podcast is made possible by Site Design Associates, the Long Island Sound Institute, the Ambassador Museum, United States of America, Mr. Kevin M. J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and listeners like you everywhere. Now contact me at Greenwich Town for All Seasons at gmail.com. You can learn more about the show and listen to past shows by going to Greenwich Town for All Seasons.blogspot.com. Our next show is scheduled for next Tuesday, the 27th of December, 2022. Now, before I bid you farewell, one of my Christmas wishes came true today. I got to spend it with you via this podcast. Well, that makes me smile, and I hope it does you too. (laughs) Anyway, I wish all my Jewish friends and neighbors near and far a warm, happy Hanukkah. May the festival of light be filled with peace and prosperity for you and yours. Happy holidays! Wishing all aloha, as we say in Hawaii, a sea of abundant smiles and a reminder that miracles and magic of this holiday season are yours. Uh, I am looking forward to seeing you next Tuesday as, my goodness, 2023 rapidly approaches. Can you imagine? (laughs) Are you ready? Dare I ask? Well, anyway, in the meantime, I'm grateful to all of you for your interest and enthusiasm for celebrating Greenwich, Connecticut's history. As we usher in the holiday season, I wish you all a happy Hanukkah, a Merry Christmas, happy holidays, a magical and merry week ahead. Enjoy it to the fullest, and I look forward to being back with you again next Tuesday, December 27th, 2022, for the final show of the year. (laughs) 